0: Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. The really bizarre thing about living, I think, in this era of 2020 is that it's a terrible time to be either a futurist or a sci-fi writer, because either you've You've demonstrably proved your inability to predict the future, or you've lost all your plot lines. You you know, as someone who's, who does similar things to me, do, do you sort of feel this little, that there's sort of nothing to say now?
1: Oh, oh I think it's even, it might even be worse in that um, all of our deepest and darkest nightmares have come true. And so then you're just like, oh, no, I don't want to open that next box of nightmares. <laughs> like it's, it's almost like it's, it's worse because there's always that part of speculation, whether you're speculating for because you're an entrepreneur like myself, where I'm trying to figure out where to go or whether, you know, your job is to actually speculate, you know, foresight and whatnot. It's you're always in that. You just have you have to be an optimist. <laughs> you have to have some like optimism because if you don't you're just going to be so depressed and 2020 has challenged that assumption that optimism is is how to do this. And I'm sure there are some people who are not optimists and they they're able to, you know, get their their way how they or get to the where they want to go, but I I just can't do it. And so it's been hard. It's been really hilariously complicated, but at the same time I do find that a lot of the things that we all have been saying are largely coming true. Right. So that's true. Like it's not just that there are all these things that were like surprise. Now there's, you know, uh, terror hornets or whatever in the United States, you know, and a surprise, like all these things, there's all this stuff that wasn't coming true, but then there's a lot of stuff that suddenly came true very fast, like, you know, remote culture for work or the fact that, we're accelerating all of these things that we knew were going to arrive, but, but wouldn't, we didn't
0: expect. Um, but but this, I think This, that's this, this, this the- is where it gets complicated as well, because, it, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, and you gave a great talk on this last year that I saw, which, which was about the sort of unintended consequences, which, oh, you yeah. know, even technologists, we, we, can, we can predict the likelihood of a bunch of things happening. It's very hard to predict the interaction effects between all those things arriving at once.
1: Yeah. And I wonder, I I mean, I have not done this. I'm sure someone has, but I wonder if you were to even go back past technologists and just look at humans, are humans able to predict how things will interact? Because I think we're just so myopic. I think that's the issue is I think it's an issue of a single focus. Like I think about technology. I think about e-commerce. I think about communities, online communities. I think about all these things. And so everything is within that lens. So when I'm thinking of is this good? Is this bad? It's always within this very discreet lens. And so when someone's like, yeah, there's going to be riots. I'm like, wait a minute, what? Like I was thinking specifically about this other thing, which is like, you know, how commerce works in the future. Um, you know, oh well, there's going to be a, you know, like a l- largely, you know, income inequality based concerns. I just didn't consider that. That wasn't something that I, I had even thought of.
0: I'm talking today with Harper Reed, uh, if you look up Harper's website, he doesn't have a bio. He has a timeline of unusual things that have happened. Uh, so from that timeline, I've discovered he is the CEO and founder of Zoom <laughs> Us, which is a screensaver for these troubled times. Uh, fortunately, that's not the only thing he's done. Uh, he was, of course, famously the CTO for Obama's uh, campaign, uh, the founder of Modest, which is now an email server. And, uh, (laughs) and and then of course, Threadless, which was one of the coolest companies I I, I remember, um, you know, of those early days of e-commerce. Harper, it's great to uh, see you again virtually. It's been a while. It has. It has. We met in, we met actually in Norway. We did. Didn't we meet in Norway? We we met in Norway, um, which is so much cooler than saying we met on LinkedIn.
1: Yeah, I think they're just different things. I mean, LinkedIn offers you some connections, it offers you potential jobs. Norway, it, you know, you, you might randomly get into a sauna with a stranger
0: who hopefully isn't the, the head of a death metal band.
1: I mean, likely is when I when I during that um, time when I was in Norway that 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 trip um, when I was going to there I was talking to the organizers the event organizers and I was just mentioning oh when I was growing up you know and maybe now as an adult even I listened to a lot of death metal and I thought it was fun and a lot of it was Norwegian and they were just like oh yeah you know that's a myth you know not very many people in Norway are into death metal Um, and I was like oh okay cool like I don't know like I don't know so I go to Norway I'm at dinner. And I relay this story about how, you know, hey, you know, the organizers and every single person at the dinner was like, oh, no, no, no. We're all into death metal. We're all in death metal bands. Everyone was in a different (laughs) death metal band. And I was like, what is happening?
0: Very funny. So, you know, just what we were talking about before, I I think is very relevant to the moment, which is the difficulty of trying to understand the law of unintended consequences of your decisions and, and how different technologies interact. And I think this is very pertinent to, to the moment because, of course, 2020 is, a, is not only the, uh, you know, the preview of the apocalypse, it's also the U.S. election, <laughs> which, which may be yeah. one and the same thing. Uh, but, you know, when you, when you think back to the work you did in 2012, uh, which I think in your own words was weaponized for 2016, yeah. what, what, if you could go back then, what would you tell yourself? You know, would you stop yourself? Oh, basically it's so complicated so i mean it's really hard and i
1: think about this from every direction i think about it from 2012 up like did could we have seen where we were going to go and did we did we do things that were maybe not Well, just say compromise did we do things that were could that we could have could we have seen how ethically compromised things would become um
0: could and, you unpack a little what what you did, did yeah you, yeah let me yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I will. But let me first, let me say also that I go the other direction as well and say, if I was the CTO in 2016, you know, obviously not for Trump, but if I was, would I have done the same things that the Trump CTO did? Like, I think it goes both directions. And so, so in 2012, we largely invented the kind of modern election stack for the internet. So how social media worked, um, targeting all of the kind of analytics stuff. So I was a CTO, there was a chief analytics officer named Dan Wagner. Um, there was a guy named Raid Ghani who, uh, Gilani who was their, their like kind of scientist, chief scientist. Um, and then, you know, we worked together to, to kind of, I guess, change for better or for worse, how the U.S. elections work. And there's so many moving parts. Um, and, but I think we can actually just focus on one of those parts, which is Facebook. Because there's so many moving parts, and so much of it is very confusing. Because it's it it is very hard to. It's very hard to look at it as all as one. It's just such a big system. Because you you know like where does the targeting fit? But on Facebook, it's very clear. Like we used Facebook to do targeted messaging, targeted advertising. Um, we didn't go as far as we saw people go in 2016 with um, psychometrics and all that kind of crazy stuff. But we went pretty far. More importantly, we invented a way to use Facebook that I think Facebook itself had not yet seen with downloading and crawling all of the data, creating our own um, kind of Facebook graph outside of Facebook, then doing modeling on top of that to be able to target the right people. Um, I remember being in a meeting with Facebook where they basically said, please stop, <laughs> you are destroying our servers. Now, the thing that's interesting, they didn't say, please stop, you're hurting people. They didn't say, please stop, what you're doing is inappropriate. They said, please stop, you're making our servers sad. Like we, the, the queries were so elaborate that the Facebook hardware, like the servers that were running this were, um, were under strain. And I think that is probably, you know, I think it's just this very interesting thing of, we all looked at this, we knew we were getting all this data, we we did a lot of testing, we did all sorts of stuff to make sure it wasn't creepy, to make sure that it wasn't, um, that people didn't think it was weird, um, you know, the 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 users and the consumers and the constituents, they didn't think it was weird or bad. And I don't think once we said, well, how could this turn out? And I think part of this is like, you know, kind of what you were getting at that, that When you're in something like that, like I was in obviously the CTO the campaign, I'm sitting there, it's very termed, like it's going to be over. I have a goal. I want to win. When you're in that kind of situation, I think there's this interesting thing that happens is that you don't think of anything outside of that. So I wasn't actually thinking, what will the person in 2016 on the Dem side or the Republican side learn? What will they do? What, when, they, if, when they look back and observe what we did, what are they going to take away from that? Because I think that might've been a helpful exercise, but I actually think it's, it's impossible. And I think this because, well, obviously being in our shoes, you know, traveling around the world, talking to folks, I guess you used to travel around the world, traveling around our apartments and condos and houses and basements, talking to folks on our Zooms. When you're in those, those situations, you, you get this perspective on, on, you try and have a perspective on a lot of things. But and it's easy for us to be kind of the Debbie Downers of sorts or to sit there and say, you know, if we're not careful, this will happen. Um, but when you're an entrepreneur or when you're a um, kind of in one of those very intense situations, I actually don't think you're capable of being both an optimist towards the future, let's get all this work done to achieve this goal, and being a pessimist around safety
0: and making sure you have a
1: future proof perspective.
0: But but so it, I think but, you but have in a to, sense that's that's exactly what we ask business leaders to do all the time. You know, they 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 need to it, optimize yeah. for profits, but if they if they don't consider the implications of the way they use technology, can come back to haunt yeah. them.
1: Well, so I I would I would posit that I think that's true. I, I absolutely. But as a CEO, um, and I've just started another company. I'm very excited. Not excited. Not ready to talk about it yet. But very excited to get to get going. I mean, it's just like it's weeks old at this point. But as a CEO, I know that I'm going to have a irrationally optimistic view of what we're building. There's just no way I'm not going to have that. But that means that I also need to either surround myself with people or hire someone that is pessimistic and and will be thoughtful about what's going to happen. Right. Right, because I don't think that we can. I don't think that an entrepreneur now. Maybe I've never been the CEO of a billion-dollar company. I've never been a public company CEO. Maybe at that level, you can. You you have the space and the time to like think about the unintended consequences. But I think when you're a startup CEO, or you're in an aggressive situation like a campaign, I think you actually have to have a person next to you. Like you have to have like your chief pessimist officer. You know, like the 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 very smart. Uh, theoretical researcher, ethicist, whatever that person is, you know, someone that comes out of academia or whatever that can sit there and tell you really hardcore stuff. And, you know, she can be someone that is, that is, um, has corporate experience, maybe not, but the point is, is that you can talk to them and they will have a very specific, they will be able to hold that kind of negative point of view, whereas you hold the positive and you can balance it, but you have to listen.
0: Right. Yeah, and and, uh, it's it's a bit like the story of the emperor who had someone following around, whispering in his ear, saying, "Remember, you're a dust." You know, you you sort of you you need that that kind of embodied conscience. But but I think to your point, there's there's another aspect to this as well, which is it's not just um, it's 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 not just what we retrospectively the ethics we retrospectively impose on on the past. I mean, part of the, the genius of bringing you and others like you into that campaign was that these were established models in e-commerce um, mm-hmm. of, of engaging and tracking customers and then using data to be much more targeted. I mean, this was not controversial when you were selling T-shirts, no. right? Uh, no,
1: and it's also, I don't think it was also controversial
0: when we did the campaign as well. And I think that's where it's. But Cambridge Analytica made it controversial because they sort of, yeah. they, they took it the and- next three steps.
1: And I think those steps, that's where it's very interesting. So I've been thinking about those steps a lot. Um, not as much recently because we're a little bit like we're, we're just, it's kind of like, ah fuck it. We're already there, right? But right in 2016, 2017, I thought about it a lot. And the Cambridge Analytica stuff, I was not surprised at all that that went down. But the big difference between 12 and 16 on, from that perspective, where we used much of the same data, we used much of the same Tools they had four years ahead of us, so they had a little better technology. But for the most part, we invented what they did. The difference was we asked permission, and I think that's it. Like that's the difference. In 2016, Cambridge Analytica used some Facebook data that they got off of a researcher that was unethical and sold data that they didn't have, like that they shouldn't have had, Um, data that was that was. That was kind of scraped from Facebook outside of their EULAs, outside of their user agreements. Whereas we got data that the users said we asked every user that gave us data can you know can give us this data and they said yeah sure you know and that's that's I think a really big difference.
0: I, <laughs> I guess that's a pretty I, huge I've, difference. I've had this argument with a number of people um, in the past, which is uh, a lot of leaders set their benchmark, and and arguably Cambridge Analytica was skating this as well, which is. Uh, as long as what we do is within the letter of the law or there's nothing specifically yeah. that says you can't do it, yeah. then it's okay. Yeah. And my view is, is that your legal team will never get you to the right place for an ethical decision. Because yeah. no, exactly. it's only if you put the user's best interests at heart that
1: yeah, and, you get anywhere close to that. And that's a huge thing. I remember we, in 12, we spent a lot of time thinking about what is the perspective of the user? Like the user, like they're this person potentially, let's say, you know, you have you obviously have these personas, right? So the persona, one of them was like a 60-year-old um, Latino woman who's a volunteer um, for the Obama campaign. Like, what, do, what would they think if you pop up a dialogue that says, we're going to take all this data, or will you give us all this data? What, do, what are they going to think? And so what we did is we tested it. We tested it in focus groups. We tested it with user experience testing. We spent a lot of time talking to users. And what we found is that they actually will give us a lot of data if you ask. But they'll only give you the data if they know why. So we would say, hey, you know, we're and, and you see this all the time. Like we're not the first people to discover this. Like when you turn off ads in some apps, they say, well, we use this to give you a better experience. In many cases, that's true. It also is used to target you with advertising. That same technology that's used to personalize your experiences is so, you know, we we did we were pretty upfront about it. I feel comfortable. But the other thing we did, and I think this is even more important, is Um, We had this, we had this model that we took all this Facebook data and then we could basically run a query or run some analytics and it would pop out. um, It would pop out with um, your best friend, (laughs) literally your best friend. And the cool thing about the best friend thing was it was just neat. Like, like I remember running it on myself and it was like, you know, um, my literal best friend from childhood, who I'm still very, very good friends with my partner and then my brother those are the top three. And I'm like, well, that's pretty good. How'd it do that? And so it did this thing of like looking at who um, clicked on what and, and like who followed you and like who like you checked in with and all this stuff. And it was interesting because it was this very clear um, just use of data that then we could use to help say, okay, Mike, here are the people that we, that you influence, not the, not the, so it's like these micro influencers. The problem was is we popped this in front of some people and we said, what do you think? And so people were like, well, this is, this is really creepy. So then we had this really cool thing that was really creepy. And so we had to roll it back. We had to say, how do we make this not creepy? Because it's, it's just because it's cool doesn't mean it works. And, and what we found as well is in some cases, um, it might surface an a, a ex-partner, an abuser, um, people who you do not want to have surfaced as your best friend. Um, and so we had to be very thoughtful about this. And we really were careful about that. I
0: don't think Cambridge Analytica was careful. No. I th- think that's it, it, one of the big differences. But it was also operating at a different scale. I mean, if, if the original sin of 2012 was collecting data about people and, and using it to talk to them more effectively, 2016 was about imputing data that you didn't have um, <laughs> and, and using it to reach people that yeah. didn't even know that you were targeting them. So right. if, if you're now a CTO in 2020, what do you think the temptation is? Like what what's the big red button on the table mm. which you you should be scared about pushing? I'm not
1: really sure because and I say this in that I, I've obviously thought about it, but the complicated thing about 2020 is we can't go outside. <laughs> so typically In a campaign, you have a very simple and straightforward perspective, which is um, you have media buying, you have targeting for ads, for fundraising, and then you have getting people to vote, which is where you go outside. You have volunteers and you have huge numbers of volunteers knocking, going around, doing all sorts of stuff. And um, what we're finding right now is that we can't go outside. Right. (laughs) which is complicated. Now, obviously, some people go outside and, and it's in some places it's safer. Not in the United States, it is. <laughs> but um, so it's this very interesting perspective of what would you do in 2020? Well, I think you would invest heavily in data, heavily in targeting. I think you would invest in such a way where the people who are being targeted know what's going on. I think that's a, there's a benefit to this because it's not a surprise anymore everyone knows the drill so i think you can actually use that and participate in that and make that part of the game where you can say to these folks um you know hey here's here's some stuff we're gonna if you click this button we're gonna slip down some of your data um you know obviously you give us permission and through that we're gonna help you do the job that you would normally do if you were on the street which is like we're gonna we're going to help you. You're going to become an organizer. You click this button. We're going to crawl your Facebook, your Twitter, or wherever. And then you're going to become an organizer and you're going to help get the message out to the people that you influence the most. Um, and I think the key there is it's this combination of using the technology that we have in 2020 with this idea of permission um, and this idea of enabling them to be in control, giving them autonomy, giving them ownership, giving them the ability to do that work. I think that's what I'd be thinking about. Um, because I think in 2020, even if you look at the apps that are really popular, a lot of it really is about autonomy. Um, you know, And if you think about the dream jobs for the young people, it's influencer, which I think is an extreme expression of autonomy. Like, it's like, I can do whatever I want. I'm doing this and I'm recording myself because <laughs> I want to. Um, you know, And so I think that we can just say, what are the influencer <laughs> dynamics? give a bunch of data to get that going, and then make sure that all of these volunteers can become influencers for their small communities. I'm just thinking- But there's probably a reason I wasn't hired. (laughs) So maybe, because I'm old, like I haven't done it in in eight years, 10 years, I'm old. I don't, I might, you know, I, I think this is, I remember talking to someone and saying, they were like, well, would you do it? And I was just like, I don't think so, because I'm Old
0: now, I think you need someone who's young and knows the game. Yeah. I don't know the game. It, it's always at risk of, of feeling like that scene in Austin Powers where Doctor Evil concocts this outrageous <laughs> yeah. scheme that's actually been done already and wasn't a big deal because yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, been a exactly. for fifty years. Exactly. Let's shift gears a little. A lot of people are worrying and now about the rise of AI and automation, and, and I think in many ways the, the pandemic has provided some cover for what, what would have been otherwise some, some pretty dire technological restructuring of the workforce. So one of the things I, I often worry about is, you know, what does a, what is an equitable society look like? Is, is it going to still be possible? Yeah. And, and, and part of this is, is about money and it's about jobs. The other part is about privacy and, and, um, yeah. and transparency. What, what do you... What do you most worry about, do you think, the real dystopian scenario, basically?
1: Yeah. So there's a couple of things that I think about quite a bit. Um, I think that our economy has split into many economies. And that is with information. And it's almost like it's just stratified where there are these bands that go through. And there's the rich person band. um, And that person, you know, has money in an equity market or money in some investments that gather them some sort of amount of money back, you know, every year. And then they worry less and less and every year they get more and more. Um, And then there's pretty much everyone else, you know, so we're bifurcated in that regard, but, but in the everyone else section, there's even, you know, there's smaller and smaller bands of that have less and less power and where it gets really gnarly and we can use COVID as an example. It gets really gnarly because you could imagine a situation where um, I'm an office worker and I go to my office. Maybe I'm a paralegal or some sort of required office worker that actually has to work in an office, um, or even a warehouse worker. That might be an easier example. So, you're a warehouse worker um, and you go to work, and they say, hey, you need to install this app on your phone to, do, to, to allow us to do some digital contact tracing and exposure notification while you're in the work spot, workspace. Um, you need to do t- regular testing, um, and we get access to all the data because we need to be able to make sure that our workspace is safe. Um, which means that you have just given, you know, health data um, and test data and maybe your location data and all sorts of other data to your workplace um, because- And possibly you, DNA as well. I mean, yeah, it could be any, could, right, exactly. And so I don't think that the people who are pushing for this mean to make it so Gattaca-ish, but what ends up happening is, is there are chilling effects. And we kind of referenced in the beginning where that we're not very good at thinking about what happens when everything suddenly becomes networked together or what everything happens to be related. And um, this is where it gets kind of gnarly because, you know, so you have this app and it's great and, you, you know, you feel safer because you can work in your office space or as a paralegal or wherever because you know that everyone has this app. But then, um, you know, because of exposure notifications and how they're networked, what happens if you then get an exposure ping and workers says, well, hey, you should take, you know, 14 days off just to make sure you're not sick. Um, This actually happens today. I've had this happen to friends who've worked in hospitals where they've had an exposure and the hospital says, you should take 14 days off. In in those cases that are happening today in these hospitals with some friends in healthcare, the hospital is saying, you are exposed as part of work, so we're going to pay for you to have those 14 days off. Um, And it's also covered in the US law and all this other stuff. But it's not part of work. You're just a warehouse worker. Then what happens is they say, you should take 14 days off and you probably don't get paid. Um, and so then you're like, well, I, I need to be careful because if I'm exposed with this app, because you're suddenly you've changed from thinking about your health, which is where you were thinking, you're, you've started thinking, okay, if I'm exposed on this app, if the app says that I've been exposed, then I don't get paid. And so you've suddenly linked privacy to actual paychecks. Right. And so then you start figuring out how do you hack the app to make it never say that you're exposed, despite you maybe have been exposed. So then you're introducing COVID into the workplace because you're trying to get paid because you have this app and it's this constant cat and mouse. Um, and so then the, the other thing that happens is when you look at like, there's a, there's a great Harvard researcher, Shi Hong Lin, when you look at her work, she's saying that most of the the, the um, infections are in small communities. So like a church or a small immigrant community or your family or your small workplace, it's not in like going to the grocery store or going to the park or going to the mall. It's in these small kind of clusters. Um, and so then what happens is you get exposed and it triggers all your community's phones to also get exposed. And so not only were you out of work for 14 days with no pay, but your churches. And so I think the thing is, is as we network all this stuff, what happens is this scenario that was really great in the perfect kind of, I'm writing a white paper world. Suddenly gets really, really messy because the world that we live in isn't perfect. And, and I can only speak to the US context of where we don't have proper rate, wage protection, where we don't have proper healthcare, where we don't have proper protection for many of these workers. And so many of them, you know, they're, they're going to be forced to use these apps, they're going to be forced to use testing procedures. And the network of those is really what's gonna cause problems.
0: And, and this is, and that's this where it is scares the irony, me. isn't it? That, that our hyperconnectivity actually risks breaking down our associations and c- civic groupings, yeah. you know, whether it's family right. or church or um, communities, right. that, 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 that in, in a way, the more connected we are, the more we risk actually being alienated and alone.
1: Yeah, and, and I think it's, it's interesting because I think the thing that's even more complicated is we are, the connections that are being exploited are not the online connections. And so when when you say the more connected we are, like as we, we've gotten more and more connected, but it's actually hurting the in-person connections. It's not hurting the internet connections. And so it causes, it has this funny problem that we are really going to, well, we're just going to suffer um, because, you know, Maybe it's the church or maybe it's your local, you know, farmer's market or wherever it is that you have your community, that's where you're not going to be able to participate. But you can easily participate on Facebook, posting memes, you know, (laughs) posting hate memes and all this other crap. (laughs) You can do that fine. Um, You just can't do the thing that actually is keeping people, I think, even keel and keeping people comfortable.
0: Well, one of the ideas that was talked about, I think, 10 years ago was this idea of differential privacy where you could... um, you could collect data and you could use this to power AI systems or, you know, exposure notification systems, but you could ultimately protect the individual. Um, is that something that you think has more relevance now than it, than it did before? Or is it going to be a bit of a dead end?
1: I, I actually think it's incredibly important now. And I also think that many of our, these big companies you know, that have caused a lot of these problems are also investigating this aggressively as well. And so you see Google releasing differential privacy libraries. You see a lot of stuff coming out of, um, you know, all, just just any of the AI kind of proposals have a differential privacy part. Um, My favorite differential privacy solution is OpenMind. It's O-P-E-N-M-I-N-E-D. And they they are, they're just building tools that allow you to do machine learning and all sorts of stuff on data that you don't really have access to. And I love this because what it does is it means, You don't have to take the data from the users to do the cool stuff with machine learning and analytics, because I think that's where it gets really interesting. If if I can say, I'm going to keep all the data for myself as a user, as a person, but I still want the opportunity to get good product recommendations or music recommendations or movie recommendations or food recommendations, whatever that might be, I still want that because I want to participate in the good stuff. I want to live, leave that, lead that good life of, of having nice things and watch the movie that that might be interesting for my personal view. But I don't necessarily want to give all of my data out to someone to hold. And that that promise is there. It, it will work. It can work if we choose to. And and I I learned this somewhat. I would say not the hard way, but I learned this rather aggressively during COVID. Where I was doing a lot of work around the exposure notification stuff, and and doing and helping a lot of folks build those apps and building out privacy frameworks for those apps, and I was working with this guy named Andrew Trask, and he's from Open Mind. And one of the things that he kept saying is he was like, "Why did, can't? Why can't the data just reside on the device? Like, why does it have to go anywhere?" And I kept being like, "Well, because." And that was almost all I had. Like that was it. I was just like, well, because that's how that's how apps are made. You have a server and you have a client and they just they're friends, you know, and that's just how it works. And he finally just said like, Harper, it doesn't have to be this way. Like it's it can, but it doesn't have to be. If we want to the data can just be on the device and we can send s- signals up that represent the data but don't give the data away so that the user Still has control of all their data. They can delete their phone. They can throw in the lake. They can do whatever they want with it, and no corporation will own that data. Um, and and the important thing, and this is an important thing for the U.S. probably more so than other places, but I think it's important everywhere, is that it also means that it's not subpoenaable. Yeah. So if you have data on your on your device, and and we see this over and over again, this is one of those big unintended consequences things that I think people forget about. If you have data on your device that on your device that that says. Um, For instance, like we saw with Link uh, Live Journal, where you have this giant, this gay and lesbian community, this really great community, vibrant community, gay, lesbian, trans community. Um, And then it's bought by a Russian company, which has aggressive anti-gay laws. (laughs) so that's not good because everything resides on one centralized place. But imagine a world where you don't have to fear that, that in fact, all of your data is just on your device that you own in your hard drive. And you don't have to worry about how it is represented outside of that, how who owns it? Is it are you licensing it? All this other stuff. So I, I think it's really important. But I don't it, think it we're there yet.
0: It doesn't even need to be on the device. It, it could be in your own um private cloud where essentially that's your yeah, you know, you it's yeah. like it's like you you've bought some space on AWS, right? So uh, yeah, th- th- this is so much bigger than just exposure notification, of course, is it? it goes to the heart it's of huge. the future of these AI devices. Yeah, like it makes no sense so, to me why uh, for an order for my smart speaker to work, you know, I, I, I basically have to give them permission to record my household 24 like, <laughs> seven. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it seems like it's crazy. It seems like, you know, I've, I've got a SWAT team in here to deal with a mosquito problem. Um, so So there's
1: a, so there's a funny thing that I've been thinking about a lot and, and, and I know you're into photography, I'm into photography as well. And there's this thing I've been thinking about. And, um, there was just a paper written by some folks here in Chicago that, that answered this question, which was, how do you publish your photos in such a way where they will not be harvested and harvested for metadata harvested for your data harvested for your face? Harvested for all these things. It's like when you do a, uh, you know, you do a TV show or something, or you go to a conference and they give you that form that says your like, likeness may be used in like marketing material, blah 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 blah. And typically, you're just like, well, okay, you know. But but this is like every photo you upload to Instagram, your likeness may be used in some model that is going out there and then like recognizing you in a security camera ten years out, like nobody knows. Um, and so I've been thinking, like, how do you solve this problem? And this, so these academics that I think. University of Chicago released this um, this paper about inserting micro pixels, all these pixels around your face, so that you foil face recognition and you foil object recognition mm-hmm. by just kind of fucking with the pixels around your face. So basically, it looks where the face is, it fudges it up a little bit, and then it uploads it. And the thing is, is you could run, you could do a process much like we do with resizing and all this stuff that fuzzes all the objects in your photos, and they're in. It's indecipherable. Or you just can't tell, um, indecipherable is the wrong word, but you cannot tell what it is when you, with your eyes. You just can't.
0: So am I, I going to this straight? We should spend a fortune buying Leica lenses and glass to get perfect pictures and then introduce and then random totally noise mess it up. Yeah. <laughs> to the ground <laughs> yeah, truth of that picture.
1: <laughs> well, it's always, I mean, I, my favorite thing is to, you know, to shoot with a really expensive lens with like a $30 filter on it. You know, it's, it's basically that, except with a computer in between it, and it's much safer.
0: This is, uh, I mean, this is the core of differential privacy, which is injecting noise yeah. in, 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 in yeah. into the underlying de- truth of the data. And I guess the savvy 21st century consumer will have an armor of these tools that they're, that they're taught to guard Ooh. their identities with, you know, from a very young age. I don't
1: know if that's a given yet. I hope they have that armor, but I also think that we've seen over and over again, a couple things, you know, one, you know, if you look at like people like Dana Boyd and kind of what she says, the youth are pretty smart. They know what they're doing. They have a good handle on data. Um, However, companies are really smart as well. And they know that the youth have a pretty good handle on data. And so it's this, once again, we're at this cat and mouse game where the future people, the youth of today you know, they're, they're fighting and trying to regain some of the privacy, trying to be, you know, they, they do things like their Finsta accounts, they use Snapchat, they have used Signal. There's all these things that they're doing that are, that are kind of not what we olds do. But the problem is the companies know that. And so that's why you have acquisitions such as WhatsApp. That's why you have acquisitions, you know, these big acquisitions. That's why TikTok is such an issue all over the world. Um, you know, and it's, it's about who owns that data because they know that it might be ephemeral, but you can still model off of it and do this stuff. So although I really think that these folks can and truly will protect themselves and have tools to do it, I worry that what we're going to run into is, is one of these situations where, I don't know, it just seems like it's going to be so easy for us to all be like, oh, but it's nice to share our photos with our friends. And then,
0: you know, they're harvesting our DNA and making... Um, you know, wor- worker mutants on Mars or something. There's been a lot of, uh, you mentioned TikTok, and there's been a lot of focus on the geopolitics of TikTok. But, yeah. but but to me, the it sort of misses the most fascinating thing about TikTok, which is one. it's one of the great examples of using AI and algorithms to so precisely understand how to keep someone engaged um, yeah. and, and what to curate for them, that it's sort of a a prototype of the next generation of any kind of retail or consumer or user experience. I mean, it makes Amazon's recommendations look stone age in comparison.
1: Yeah, and I, I don't know if it's just, I think it might be that it's just a simpler problem. You have four inputs, right? You have a heart button, you have a swipe button, you have a follow button, and you can probably just make, and then you, you basically use computer vision to tag the images. So you have a bunch of tags and right. you're like, Mike, you know, every time a, a a vintage restored Porsche jumps on, Mike hits like like that's it. It's a skinner and the next it's, a, thing, it's a skinner box. <laughs> yeah. And next thing you know, that's all you see. And I've been actually thinking about how do I reset some of these profiles? Because I want to start over with my the model. I want to, I want to kind of have a re a redo, but I don't want to give up my followers or my friends. But I want, I want, like for instance, on Instagram, I would love Instagram to be like, okay, you can reset. Because right now it's surfacing a couple people that I really like seeing their stuff. But I'm like, what am I missing? Like they've chosen for me this, they've curated this, but I'm like, what else is out there? And it's impossible to find it. It's impossible to find.
0: It. So I guess when you look forward to the, the next few years, I mean, the, the weirdest part of the world is what happens when we put AI inside our experiences and our corporations. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of leaders are going to face the kind of, consciously or not, the dilemmas you faced back in 2012. What do you think we should put at the heart of our kind of ethical viewpoints or our decision-making?
1: I think the trick is going to be that It seems in my conversations, and I I wonder if this is the same for you, but it seems that for the most part, a lot of the CEOs and executives are starting to understand that they have to be thoughtful about the unintended consequences of tech. Um, And so they're doing things like they'll make an advisory board or what have you to try and kind of curtail or solve some of these issues. Um, I think what we're going to see, though, is we're going to see a need of, um, we need the workers to be involved as well. It used to be that it was, how do we just get the, you know, you need an a, an ethicist or you need, a, you know, someone like that. Um, but this is the key here is that I think everyone needs this. We need to make sure that every worker from the bottom to the top is an ethicist, that they all have a strong point of view on what is right and wrong with technology. And it used to be that I think, you know, people like you and I could get away with saying to a CEO friend you know, just as long as you've read some books, you know, you know what the issues are, you'll probably be fine. But I think today, because work is easier, you can, you can hire a programmer in the Philippines that can be the best programmer for your whole company. You can then have, you know, your assistant be somewhere in, in London. Um, and then you can have your CFO be somewhere in Italy. Like, it's easier to get people. It's easier to do work, which means that everyone has to be an ethicist. Everyone has to make sure that they have an ethical point of view that is shared. Um, and we need to have, I think, more strong statements on what those are. And I think we're gonna see that from a lot of startups in the future. And we're gonna see that from a lot of companies. You're already starting to see big companies like Goldman, etc., invest on some of these ideas. Um, and so we're, we're gonna start seeing it in every single employee.
0: You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds.